welcome to the Anthems Podcast. We are actually getting another episode of this. Uh, I am shooting for 12 of them a year. This is number eight. Uh, If I don't reach 12 on year one, I'm not going to be upset about it, but I am going to keep doing this. So thank you for sticking with me. Today, I'm going to open the show with something different, because we are going to talk about the bear in the room, or rather, on the globe. It's impossible for me to ignore it, because I'm looking at a lot of maps contemplating future shows. So we are going to talk about Russia, or officially, the Russian Federation. Which means that I have to acknowledge another terrible thing. But this is one that's happening while you listen to the show in real time for at least some more of the foreseeable run. And that, in the immortal words of Huck Finn, sucks, my friend. It powerful sucks. Obviously, Putin's war will not be the focus of this episode of my anthem show, but you'll be thinking about it, so I have to acknowledge it and say something. What I will say is that I think we've had enough of war especially ones with no discernible purpose apart from an in-vain effort at reconstructing some of the former quote-unquote glory of the USSR, Uh, Ukraine will get their episode when they're done kicking Russia out of their country. I think doing it before that would be a disservice to the people that are exhibiting a level of heroism that is simply astonishing, and I wish I never am asked to do. So... Despite the country being in the news constantly right now, this anthem is not brought to you by the war this country's leader started. This one got picked because Russia is very big, and I notice it a lot. And I'm looking at lots of maps. It's a silly reason, but I am frequently a silly person, and leaning into silliness is an important part of life. It should be for everybody. It's fun, especially for an episode where the topic runs the risk of straying into grimly serious stuff that Russia has done in history. It also has a very large part in history because it's a giant country and somehow that's worked out that way. Since my education was initially in the American public school system, learning real stuff about Russia has involved dispelling some of the notions that were in my head. It was painted as kind of a backwards place for most of my, uh, you know, up through high school. Nobody really said the truth about it in the system. As with everything, it is far more complicated than I was led to believe. So, propaganda. An apt term for the material I'm covering in national anthems, kind of, right? <laughs> so, uh, Which is the closest thing to a smooth and intentional segue that I've managed to get through yet. No spoilers again. Well, no more of them. You'll hear me again in about four minutes. And right now, you will hear an anthem.
my initial impression is that I kind of love the thing. It should not be a large shock that I'm a fan of anthem music in general. It's a, a weird thing to do. Remember when I said I lean into that? Uh, but if I liked or disliked everything about them and I was doing a show, that would be even weirder. Soviet music is actually usually very good in this genre. It's not super bombastic, but it's like a proclamation in song here. It is, in fact, a march with a little something more that we'll get to. But we have got a lot of getting to to get through to get there. So it's about time to get to the getting. I know. At least it's easy for me to locate this country on a map, since it is literally the entire top half of Europe and Asia. So we all do know where Russia is if we've looked at a map of the world ever. It's possible to go on and on and make ridiculous comparisons to things about the size of Russia, but I'll just note that it has roughly the same surface area as the dwarf planet Pluto. That is roughly 10% of the entire land area of the Earth. It is a gigantic country in a physically real way and borders a bunch of countries. Alphabetically, they are Azerbaijan, Belarus, China, Estonia, Finland, Georgia, Kazakhstan, North Korea, Latvia, Lithuania, Mongolia, Norway, Poland, and Ukraine. That is 14. And yes, it is the country that borders the most other countries. It is also one of only three nations that border three oceans, and the lakes there compromise fully one quarter of the world's surface fresh water. Even more wild is that 80% of that water is in a single amazing lake called Lake Baikal. It is a place I spent way too much time reading about. Despite its enormous size, the population in Russia remains a modest about 147 million. It still sounds like a lot, but compare it with the United States, a little less than half the size, but a little more than twice the population. This is mostly because 60 to 65 percent of Russia is in inhospitable permafrost, making it tough to live there. But it's not impossible, because there are about 33 million people that live up in the tundra of Siberia. Despite the extremely large area they're dispersed over and the variety of humanity that lives there, there is a distinct Russian identity throughout the country. It's been that way pretty much since the early 1500s, when Vasily III, who was the Grand Prince of Moscow at the time, finished the process of annexing the last few independent Russian states in the area. He did this with the backing of the Russian Orthodox Church for reasons that I didn't read enough to wager an educated guess at, although I find that, historically speaking, official churches tend to be a fan of consolidating power for the people they're considered official by. When Vasily died, his first son was crowned the first Tsar of Russia. You know his name, even if you know nothing else about the guy, because it is Ivan the Terrible. First, to be clear, listeners, this guy was definitely terrible in the contemporary sense of the word. He was a foul-tempered killer of thousands of innocent civilians, in addition to being one of the most intelligent and highly educated people of his epoch. This stuff is complicated. Terrible is not exactly the correct translation for this word, though. At the time, it was a cutting-edge translation, but it has not aged particularly well. The Russian word is grosny and it more accurately translates as menacing, fearsome, redoubtable, or formidable. It's also what the capital of Chechnya is called. Okay, and tangent. 
Ivan tried to establish an orderly dynasty of czars. Most rulers generally attempt to establish continuity in an orderly dynasty. But we know these hereditary-based government systems do not hold up long-term in most cases. In Ivan's case, it essentially never got out of the gate and into the race. Fyodor was his middle son, and the crown went to him upon his father's death of a stroke while playing chess on the 28th of March in 1584. But Fyodor was not a well-respected heir to the throne and did not have an heir of his own before his untimely death in 1598. It ushered in something called the Time of Troubles, an area of history that is literally wrought PhD thesis, so consider the following like dipping a pinky nail into an ocean. The Time of Troubles was a period of fairly complete political chaos and widespread economic turmoil due to said chaos, and also part and parcel with the famine-level crop failures that were happening in Russia at the time. Sure, the Tsar died without an heir, but his father knew he was going to be bad at his job, so his brother-in-law held all the working levers of power in Moscow, and when Fyodor died, he wasted no time in convening a council and getting proclaimed Tsar himself. The famine and the challenges to the throne were probably things that he could have handled and weathered at some point. But he died in 1605, and then his son was killed too. Then, several people were very briefly in charge, and then murdered four entire times before they ended up with the guy that was at the very beginning of the 300-year-long Romanov dynasty. And that is a huge story. It's such a gigantic and interesting tale that we're going to buckle up and use our extremely capable imaginations to experience a leap forward almost completely to the end of it. Meaning that this sentence is blasting you from 1638 right up to 1853, when the Tsar decided that they were entitled to scoop up the remains of the Ottoman Empire and start the Crimean War. I pick specifically now to jump back in for a couple of reasons. First, I really am telling a story about the anthem, even if it takes me a few, and this is a nice segue out of Fast Forward. Second, this war showed Russia some things about itself, and it informs the mindset of the people that produced the current national anthem. The Russian Empire had become part of something called the Holy Alliance, shortly after Mr. Napoleon Bonaparte got his head handed to him by the Russian army and the Russian winter. The alliance was a mostly reactionary thing that came about when the French-slash-American revolutions and then the Napoleonic Wars scared the absolute crap out of the monarchist powers in the West. They formed this group to police Europe and enforce the divine rights of the kings of Austria, Prussia, and Russia, and the very specific Russian Orthodox Christian values that they felt their kingdom should have. It was an alliance that was ideologically rejected by the other European monarchs because there was a bunch of Near Eastern mysticism and it made a lot of people uneasy in the West. However, they all tacitly or directly participated in the holding on to power thing the alliance wanted because... Not a lot of monarchs willfully relinquish mostly absolute power. Anyway, the real point of bringing up the Holy Alliance at all is that Europe was using these countries as a police force because at the time Russia had a very large standing army and the Tsar was not shy about using it. There was something like 60 or 70 million people in the country at the time and the standing army was a million strong. So Nicholas I, who was in charge at the time, loved flexing like this and having his army march in to enforce the current conservatism by force made the people in his country feel like their country was powerful. 
But that also made him think that Russia was entitled to snap up the remains of the Ottoman Empire, because the Tsar 100% believed that he was divinely entitled to his role, and then he had his armies march in to start the Crimean War. Britain and France backed up the Ottomans, and a high-casualty war was fought that resulted in Russia learning that their military was ridiculously outdated, and that all of the systems in their country were also mostly hopelessly outdated. The illusion of the largest country as the most powerful country had been shattered for the people, and they started to agitate for change. Unfortunately for those people, the reform didn't even begin until Nicholas I died some years later. His successor was Alexander I, and he actually started to try to get some stuff done. The pace of reform in any autocratic country is almost never fast enough for the people in every part of the historical record that I'm familiar with so far, and it was not different in Russia. We also saw the birth of a Russian intellectual movement called nihilism. It sought the destruction and dissolution of, you know, structural Russian elements. This eventually produced an anarchist branch of the agrarian socialist movement, and one of these groups were making repeated attempts to assassinate the current Tsar Alexander II. They finally succeeded doing so in 1881, on the very day that he announced the formation of an assembly to address some of the demands of the revolutionaries. Our composer was born shortly after this, in 1883, just a couple of years into the reign of a very reactionary Alexander III's effort to reinstill orthodoxy, autocracy, and the national character of Russia. Alexander Vasilevich Alexandrov was born in 1883 and was usually referred to as Sasha, one of the people that seemed he was always going to have a musical life. When he was growing up in a small village in the southeast of Moscow, his singing was so good that he was chosen to go to St. Petersburg and become a chorister, a fun word that I just learned for being in a chorus. Uh, this was at the Kaznin Cathedral. This place was built during the first decade of the 19th century. It was modeled after St. Peter's in Rome and eventually came to serve as a monument to the defeat of Napoleon. They even interred Commander-in-Chief General Mikhail Kutuzov there in honor of the victory. Sasha went on to study under Medner, uh, an apparently influential Russian composer that I've never heard of. I think my wife did, though. But he remains, quote, on my list to read about. He learned viola. He achieved a doctor of the arts in either Moscow or St. Petersburg. My sources are not super clear. Either way, I will admit envy that he possessed perfect pitch, because I would like to have perfect pitch, and I don't. By 1918, he had become the choir master at the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, which is, by the way, a very cool building. If, like me, you're into neoclassicalism and Masonic symbolism as an overt and fairly explicit architectural expression. I kept some of my drafting nerd. Uh, thank you, Mr. Carlson. Anyway. Sometime after he left that role in 1922, and presumably after getting pretty heavily involved in Communist Party politics, our composer established what is his namesake, the Alexandrov Choir. It was first called the Red Army Song Ensemble of the M.V. Froon's Red Army Central House, and was then, as it is now, an army choir. 
except then it was an explicitly communist government, and now they are an ostensibly democratic government, even though Freedom House rates Russia 16 out of 100 for poor civil liberties and political rights in 2023. This is where Sasha garnered the attention of one Joseph Stalin, possibly because in 1933 he wrote the anthem for the Bolshevik Party, and by then both communism Stalin were kind of a big deal in Russia. The first few bars of the song are borrowed from an earlier piece that Alexandrov wrote called Life Has Become Better. It was actually inspired by a quote from Stalin in 1935, meeting of the party. So I wonder why Joe liked the guy. I will briefly mention the lyricist as more of a footnote. He's one of Vasily Ivanok uh, Lebedev Ukumak. The pronunciation is very difficult for me with uh, Slavic and Russian names. He, he, despite being mostly tangential to our story, he was one of the first people to use a word, blot. And I love this word. It's amazing. It's sort of my favorite. It resonates with me in terms of today's politics. Blot or blat is a form of corruption that compromises a system of informal agreements, exchanges, of services, connections, party contacts, and or black market deals to achieve results or get ahead. Sounds just like insert whatever country you're watching political news about. To continue, Stalin's original Georgian name is Loseb Baserionis Yukajlovi, speaking of difficult things to pronounce, but that's not like super branding, so he changed it. He is another guy who we may meet again on this show I, but I'm not super sure about Stalin, like I am about Napoleon. He was also, I think it's fair to say, a mostly terrible person. Thankfully, he gets a pretty short role in this story, though it is a pivotal one. In 1943, the Communist International was officially dissolved for strategic reasons, and so a new national anthem was needed, and as happens kind of a lot, a contest was held. There were over 200 entries, and Alexandrov's composition was personally chosen by the Russian dictator. I'm going to kind of breeze through some history here because a detailed history of the USSR's song choice is only slightly relevant. Stalin wanted a short song, emphasizing the imminent victory in war, and his poet delivered. The song was published in late 1943 and played for the first time on midnight January 1944 and adopted the following March. Then, in 53, Stalin died, and the USSR began an active historical rewrite that has come to be called de-Stalinization, not desalination, like I keep seeing and mispronouncing over and over again. So, from 1956 until 1957, the anthem was performed without any lyrics. Then, in the late 70s, a new set of lyrics that was written earlier on by the original composer was adopted, and that focused more on how awesome communism was, with huge air quotes. Uh, and it was supposed to be less about World War II and Stalin. Then, in 1991, the entire thing fell apart on Gorbachev's watch. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall and all that stuff. And they picked up an entirely different instrumental tune as the anthem of the newly minted Russian Federation. But we're skipping the part about the different anthem for a moment, and we're going to do a time jump that is necessitated by a fun and ridiculous detail. It's been alluded to already, 
but the guy that wrote the lyrics to the state anthem of the Soviet Union during the reign of Joseph Stalin in 1942 was the same guy that wrote the de-Stalinized version of the anthem in 1977 and, unbelievably enough, wrote the current version of the song as well. All of the versions were set to the same music, and we have an excellent example of why anything historical involving the USSR this deeply in it is going to be complicated to parse out in a sensical way and result in it taking me a couple of months to write the show. It It, it is possibly a record-holding thrice anthem writer, and his name is Sergei Mikhailov. But I'll have to check back on the record-holder part because we need to know, I think, uh, and uh, I'll investigate it in a bonus episode. So our poet was born in 1913. He died in 2009, and he had a long life. So it meant he lived through and participated in some fairly significant historical stuff. Sergei was born into a noble family, and in addition to being a repeated writer of the anthem, he is one of the most beloved children's authors of all time in Russia. Having done books, movies, and cartoons, he is particularly well known for a super tall Soviet policeman called Uncle Stiopa. In English, it's Uncle Steeple. His prominence and the fact that he wrote music for the party and was very good at it got him Stalin's personal attention. So in 1942, he teamed up with prominent Bolshevik reporter and poet El Registan to pen the lyrics to the state anthem of the Soviet Union. There's an interesting story about that guy, I'm sure, but we're not going to talk about him again. That version of the anthem made it as well as they generally tend to about the length of the time that version of the country was around. After Joe had a fatal stroke, it was an instrumental until 1977 when they adopted another set of lyrics that Sergei wrote. In between writing the original anthem and the Soviet-era anthem, our poet and his wife served as KGB agents and used their influential cultural position to introduce various agents to people they would attempt to compromise. Or, in the case of the French ambassador at the time, successfully did compromise. Another anthem writer that was very much involved in the establishment of the country they were writing for. With that, we arrive back at a year that I have in my living memory, 1991, when Boris Yeltsin used his popularity as a prominent member of the Communist Party and also as an early defector from the party during the collapse of Russian communism to become the first president of the country. New government generally means new anthem, so they were looking for one. Yeltsin was advised to revive God Save the Tsar, with some lyrical modification, but instead he opted for the officially wordless piano composition Patriotcheskaya Peznia, in English the patriotic song. It, uh, again, a wordless piano composition that was intended to be the permanent anthem, and it was explicitly written into the proposed constitution. But brandy new governments are not always incredibly stable governments, and the constitution that they settled on kicked this and other matters of state symbols to the Duma. The Duma is the lower house of the Russian parliament, and I personally know only what I just told you about them. However, based on the so-called functionality of my own U.S. House of Representatives, our lower house, in 2023, my faith in similar bodies does not have a very high bar. So, <laughs> anyway, the patriotic song was generally accepted and used as the anthem while Boris Yeltsin was the president until 1999, but it was never officially adopted because it was constitutionally referred matter and required a two-thirds supermajority. 
So, mostly because of opposition by the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, there was an unofficial and wordless anthem that was used because it was a regional Soviet anthem. Don't worry, though, my patient podcast listeners. There's a man that had a solution to the problem, and that man is um, Vladimir Putin. It's okay. I don't have to get into this dude's maybe almost as bad as Stalin's life story and political uh, up-and-comingness. But he did start the conversation about a new anthem, so he's in the timeline, and here we are, with a very popular president of the country commenting that he thinks the anthem is uninspiring for Olympic athletes and then puts the issue before the state council, it gets discussed. And that was the situation at the time. There was always a contingent of the population that didn't like the wordless anthem, and I'm guessing if they had managed to land on some lyrics before Putin's presidency, then they wouldn't have changed them. I did actually check, because of course I did, and they didn't, so things happened the way that they did happen, and on the 8th of December in the year 2000, the Duma voted to adopt a bill that Putin introduced called, quote, on the national anthem of the Russian Federation, end quote. This bill called for the anthem to use the music from the original Bolshevik hymn that Alexandrov wrote, but did call for a committee to form and set about finding new lyrics. Things moved very quickly, and by the 20th of December, a mere 12 days later, the law had final approval and its first official performance on the 25th. Sergei's new lyrics were officially adopted on the 30th. The Kremlin claimed that in the span of time, the committee considered over 6,000 manuscripts from all aspects of Russian society. Regardless of my suspicions in that respect, we've finally arrived at the state anthem of the Russian Federation. Before I discuss the song itself, got a couple more loose ends here. Because this is an endeavor that humans were involved in, there was opposition to it. Boris Yeltsin, in a rare public criticism of Vladimir Putin, said the choice was blindly following the people and rejecting the reforms that had been made since the collapse of communism in the country. The liberal political party was not a fan of the anthem choice, but as you might not be shocked to hear, the communists were super thrilled about it and enthusiastically backed the decision. Well, almost certainly never know what Putin's full motivation for wanting this particular melody for the anthem is, but my bet is that it was a combination of complicated political calculations, nostalgia for an anthem that did have an important place in the first 40 years of his life, and a genuine concern for the well-being of the country he was in charge of. People are complicated. This podcast has chosen to think that at first maybe Putin wasn't terrible, but I'm wrong about lots of stuff. However, I'm not going to reach out to the Kremlin to... Uh, get a comment on what he thinks because I'm not getting on that list. Because of the song's status as the so-called Stalin hymn, there were quite a few people, and there honestly might still be, that were not at all happy about the anthem, which has led to a couple of controversies that warrant a mention. Famous cellist, uh, oof, Mr. Avaz Leopoldovich Rostropovich. Again, sorry. According to the blurb I read in his bio, he enlarged the cello repertoire more than any other cellist ever. I'll fact check that someday, or you can email me. He and others refused to stand when the song was played. Many were critical of the song that was used at a time when terrible crimes were committed by the government it represented. In a kind of 
cruel final blow to the man that helped lead Russia out of the grip of totalitarian communism? The anthem was played at Boris Yeltsin's funeral. On the one hand, it doesn't make sense because he was a former president and it is the national anthem of the country that he was the president of. However, it was a song that he was personally specifically opposed to for well-expressed ideological reasons. And with that, we have at last arrived at the discussion of the song in characteristic fashion. Musically, this is a interesting song right out of the gate for me, because it can be played in either 4-4 or 2-4 time, both in the key of C. I've no idea why they've done this. Uh, it's another thing that I'll look into someday. But at either time signature, the anthem is played at 76 beats per minute, in a solemn and singing manner. Fun fact, on my metronome, that time signature is slightly faster than Andante and slightly slower than Andantino. I will be reading through this only the current version of the lyrics. Sometimes I do it different, but here we just get the current iteration of them. This has been a very complicated episode to write, though I will make a little supplement to it at some point. In episode... 8.3 8.3 or 8.1 or something, rather. As usual, I will be reading this in English. The lyrics are obviously originally in Russian. The song is written as verse 1 chorus, verse 2 chorus, verse 3 chorus. I'll do a read-through of each verse, chorus, and then the other two verses. This time, we're talking about each verse and the lyrics in between them, because that's how it works out sometimes. Verse 1. Russia is our sacred state. Russia is our beloved country. A mighty will, great glory, your dignity for all time. Standard and classical anthem stuff here. Equating the state to something sacred, maybe divine, although not explicit here. Love and glory for one's country are clear aspirations for the listener. An uncomplicated beginning for what really are fairly uncomplicated lyrics. Uh, The chorus follows each of the three verses, and it reads as, Be glorified our motherland, the age-old union of fraternal peoples, ancestor-given wisdom of the people. Be glorified, country. We are proud of you. This refrain first heaps glory on the motherland and reminds the people of their union as one. In fact, they are a brotherhood. They have been given the wisdom of the ancestors, and it will glorify the country they're proud of even more. Very anthem-appropriate refrain, and it serves to move the song along. The second verse. From the southern seas to the polar edge, our forests and fields are spread out. You're the only one in the world. You are the only one, the native land so kept by God. In the second verse, we hear about how big Russia is, because it had to be mentioned, right? It's the biggest. Singing about the things that make a country unique or better in some minds, is a natural thing for anthems to have in them. This time, it's an attribute that you can usefully sing about. In fact, Russia is so huge and awesome that it's the only country. Here, the divine connection is made explicit as well. Also not uncommon in national anthems. The third and final verse, a wide scope for dreams and for life. The coming years open to us. We are given strength by our fidelity to the fatherland, So it was, so it is, and it will always be so. 
This is more topic-appropriate lyricism and touches on core anthem topics, projecting good about the country into the future, and an optimism for what's coming is a common theme in many of these songs. Then we bring it all together again with a reason to be true to your patriotism and a final reminder that it will always be this way. I know, this took forever to write and record. The thing is, writing stuff that you have to learn essentially all of the history about is not possible to shortcut if I would like the narrative to be coherent in any way. I just can't do it. But it's worth it, though, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to try and get 12 of these a year out, and I hope you keep listening to them. The writing, recording, and production for the show is done by me. I wrote and played the intro and outro music. The music was used with my permission, and my voice is terrible this time because I'm recording it, getting over being sick for a couple of weeks. Unless otherwise noted, the anthems I play are public domain stuff. My sources and uh, other stuff I find are contained in the show notes. The most direct way to get to these show notes is at anthemspodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook and WhatsApp as the Anthems Podcast. Uh, I'm not going to be on other socials for the time being, but I am sharing the episodes, hashtag AnthemsPod. So if you follow that, maybe it'll pop up on your feed. I've also heard that ratings and reviews super matter, so if you feel like doing that, it'd be cool. Plus, then I have feedback, and I can use it to be better at this. And getting better is a goal that I have, because I've got a bunch more of this stuff to write, and, you know, I want them to be good for you guys. You can email me corrections, comments, suggestions, recipes, ideas, instructions on how to do awesome things, and ask me questions at anthemspod at gmail.com. For better or for worse, I have made it possible to leave me a voicemail at one, excuse me, at plus one, two, zero, three, seven, five, nine, eight, three, seven, five. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>